Chapter Twenty of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Twenty. I laid myself on the bed and wrapped my limbs in the folds of the carpet. My thoughts were restless and perturbed. I was once more busy in reflecting on the conduct which I ought to pursue with regard to the bank bills. I weighed with scrupulous attention every circumstance that might influence my decision. I could not conceive any more beneficial application of this property than to the service of the indigent at this season of multiplied distress. But I considered that if my death were unknown, the house would not be opened or examined till the pestilence had ceased, and the benefits of this application would thus be partly or wholly precluded. This season of disease, however, would give place to a season of scarcity. The number and wants of the poor during the ensuing winter would be deplorably aggravated. What multitudes might be rescued from famine and nakedness by the judicious application of this sum? But how should I secure this application? To enclose the bills in a letter directed to some eminent citizen or public officer was the obvious proceeding. Both of these conditions were fulfilled in the person of the present chief magistrate. To him, therefore, the packet was to be sent. Paper and the implements of writing were necessary for this end. Would they be found, I asked, in the upper room? If that apartment, like the rest which I had seen and its furniture, had remained untouched, my task would be practicable. But if the means of writing were not to be immediately procured, my purpose, momentous and dear as it was, must be relinquished. The truth in this respect was easily and ought immediately to be ascertained. I rose from the bed which I had lately taken, and proceeded to the study. The entries and staircases were illuminated by a pretty strong twilight. The rooms, in consequence of every ray being excluded by the closed shutters, were nearly as dark as if it had been midnight. The rooms into which I had already passed were locked, but its key was in each lock. I flattered myself that the entrance into the study would be found in the same condition. The door was shut, but no key was to be seen. My hopes were considerably damped by this appearance, but I conceived it still to be possible to enter, since, by chance or by design, the door might be unlocked. My fingers touched the lock when a sound was heard as if a bolt, appending to the door on the inside, had been drawn. I was startled by this incident. It betokened that the room was already occupied by some other, who desired to exclude a visitor. The unbarred shutter below was remembered, and associated itself with this circumstance. That this house should be entered by the same avenue at the same time, and this room should be sought by two persons, was a mysterious concurrence. I began to question whether I had heard distinctly. Numberless inexplicable noises are apt to assail the ear in an empty dwelling. The very echoes of our steps are unwanted and new. This, perhaps, was some such sound. Resuming courage, I once more applied to the lock. The door, in spite of my repeated efforts, would not open. My design was too momentous to be readily relinquished. My curiosity and my fears likewise were awakened. 
The marks of violence which I had seen on the closets and cabinets below seemed to indicate the presence of plunderers. Here was one who labored for seclusion and concealment. The pillage was not made upon my property. My weakness would disable me from encountering or mastering a man of violence. To solicit admission into this room would be useless. To attempt to force my way would be absurd. These reflections prompted me to withdraw from the door, but the uncertainty of the conclusions I had drawn and the importance of gaining access to this apartment combined to check my steps. Perplexed as to the means I should employ, I once more tried the lock. The attempt was fruitless as the former. Though hopeless of any information to be gained by that means, I put my eye to the keyhole. I discovered a light different from what was usually met with at this hour. It was not the twilight which the sun, imperfectly excluded, produces, but gleams as from a lamp, yet its gleams were fainter and obscurer than a lamp generally imparts. Was this a confirmation of my first conjecture? Lamplight at noonday, in a mansion thus deserted, and in a room which had been the scene of memorable and disastrous events, was ominous. Hitherto no direct proof had been given of the presence of a human being. How to ascertain his presence, or whether it were eligible by any means to ascertain it, were points on which I had not deliberated. I had no power to deliberate. My curiosity impelled me to call. "'Is there any one within? Speak!' These words were scarcely uttered when someone exclaimed in a voice vehement but half-smothered, "'Good God!' A deep pause succeeded. I waited for an answer, for somewhat to which this emphatic invocation might be a prelude. Whether the tones were expressive of surprise, or pain, or grief, was for a moment dubious. Perhaps the motives which led me to this house suggested the suspicion which presently succeeded to my doubts, that the person within was disabled by sickness. The circumstances of my own condition took away the improbability from this belief. Why might not another be induced, like me, to hide himself in this desolate retreat? Might not a servant, left to take care of the house, a measure usually adopted by the opulent at this time, be seized by the reigning malady? Incapacitated for exertion, or fearing to be dragged to the hospital, he has shut himself in this apartment. The robber, it may be, who came to pillage, was overtaken and detained by disease. In either case detection or intrusion would be hateful, and would be assiduously eluded. These thoughts had no tendency to weaken or divert my efforts to obtain access to this room. The person was a brother in calamity, who it was my duty to succor and cherish to the utmost of my power. Once more I spoke. Who is within? I beseech you to answer me. Whatever you be, I desire to do you good and not injury. Open the door and let me know your condition. I will try to be of use to you. I was answered by a deep groan and by a sob counteracted and devoured, as it were, by a mighty effort. This token of distress thrilled to my heart. 
My terrors wholly disappeared and gave place to unlimited compassion. I again entreated to be admitted, promising all the succor or consolation which my situation allowed me to afford. Answers were made in tones of anger and impatience blended with those of grief. I want no succor. Vex me not with your entreaties and offers. Fly from this spot. Linger not a moment, lest you participate my destiny and rush upon your death. These I considered merely as the effusions of delirium, or the dictates of despair. The style and articulation denoted the speaker to be superior to the class of servants. Hence my anxiety to see and to aid him was increased. My remonstrances were sternly and pertinaciously repelled. For a time incoherent and impassioned exclamations flowed from him. At length I was only permitted to hear strong aspirations and sobs, more eloquent and more indicative of grief than any language. The deportment filled me with no less wonder than commiseration. By what views this person was led hither, by what motives induced to deny himself to my entreaties, was wholly incomprehensible. Again, though hopeless of success, I repeated my request to be admitted. My perseverance seemed now to have exhausted all his patience, and he exclaimed in a voice of thunder, "'Arthur Mervyn! Be gone! Linger but a moment, and my rage, tiger-like, will rush upon you and rend you limb from limb!' This address petrified me. The voice that uttered this sanguinary menace was strange to my ears. It suggested no suspicion of ever having heard it before. Yet my accents had betrayed me to him. He was familiar with my name. Notwithstanding the improbability of my entrance into this dwelling, I was clearly recognized and unhesitatingly named. My curiosity and compassion were in no wise diminished, but I found myself compelled to give up my purpose. I withdrew reluctantly from the door and once more threw myself upon my bed. Nothing was more necessary in the present condition of my frame than sleep, and sleep had perhaps been possible if the scene around me had been less pregnant with causes of wonder and panic. Once more I tasked my memory in order to discover, in the persons with whom I had hitherto conversed, some resemblance in voice or tones to him whom I had just heard. This process was effectual. Gradually my imagination called up an image which, now that it was clearly seen, I was astonished had not instantly occurred. Three years ago a man by name Colville came on foot with a knapsack on his back into the district where my father resided. He had learning and genius, and readily obtained the station for which only he deemed himself qualified, that of a schoolmaster. His demeanor was gentle and modest, his habits as to sleep, food, and exercise, abstemious and regular. Meditation in the forest or reading in his closet seemed to constitute, together with attention to his scholars, his sole amusement and employment. He estranged himself from company, not because society afforded no pleasure, but because studious seclusion afforded him chief satisfaction. 
no one was more idolized by his unsuspecting neighbors. His scholars revered him as a father, and made under his tuition a remarkable proficiency. His character seemed open to boundless inspection, and his conduct was pronounced by all to be faultless. At the end of a year the scene was changed. A daughter of one of his patrons, young, artless, and beautiful, appeared to have fallen a prey to the arts of some detestable seducer. The betrayer was gradually detected, and successive discoveries showed that the same artifices had been practiced, with the same success, upon many others. Colville was the arch-villain. He retired from the storm of vengeance that was gathering over him, and had not been heard of since that period. I saw him rarely, and for a short time, and I was a mere boy. Hence the failure to recollect his voice, and to perceive that the voice of him immured in the room above, was the same with that of Colville. Though I had slight reasons for recognizing his features or accents, I had abundant cause to think of him with detestation, and pursue him with implacable revenge, for the victim of his acts, she whose ruin was first detected, was my sister. This unhappy girl escaped from the upbraidings of her parents, from the contumelies of the world, from the goadlings of remorse, and the anguish flowing from the perfidy and desertion of Colville in a voluntary death. She was innocent and lovely. Previous to this evil, my soul was linked with hers by a thousand resemblances and sympathies, as well as by perpetual intercourse from infancy, and by the fraternal relation. She was my sister, my preceptress and friend, but she died. Her end was violent, untimely, and criminal. I cannot think of her without heart-bursting grief, of her destroyer without a rancor which I know to be wrong, but which I cannot subdue. When the image of Colville rushed upon this occasion on my thought, I almost started on my feet. To meet him, after so long a separation, here and in these circumstances, was so unlooked for and abrupt an event, and revived a tribe of such hateful impulses and agonizing recollections, that a total revolution seemed to have been effected in my frame. His recognition of my person, his aversion to be seen, his ejaculation of terror and surprise on first hearing my voice, all contributed to strengthen my belief. How was I to act? My feeble frame could but ill-second my vengeful purposes, but vengeance, though it sometimes occupied my thoughts, was hindered by my reason from leading me in any instance to outrage or even to upbraiding. All my wishes with regard to this man were limited to expelling his image from my memory and to shunning a meeting with him. That he had not opened the door at my bidding was now a topic of joy— to look upon some bottomless pit into which I was about to be cast headlong and alive was less to be abhorred than to look upon the face of Colville. Had I known that he had taken refuge in this house, no power should have compelled me to enter it. 
to be immersed in the infection of the hospital, and to be hurried, yet breathing and observant, to my grave, was a more supportable fate. I dwell with self-condemnation and shame upon this part of my story. To feel extraordinary indignation at vice, merely because we have partaken in an extraordinary degree of its mischiefs, is unjustifiable. To regard the wicked with no emotion but pity, to be active in reclaiming them, in controlling their malevolence, and preventing or repairing the ills which they produce, is the only province of duty. This lesson, as well as a thousand others, I have yet to learn, but I despair of living long enough for that or any beneficial purpose. My emotions with regard to Colville were erroneous but omnipotent. I started from my bed and prepared to rush into the street. I was careless of the lot that should befall me, since no fate could be worse than that of abiding under the same roof with a wretch spotted with so many crimes. I had not set my feet upon the floor before my precipitation was checked by a sound from above. The door of the study was cautiously and slowly opened. This incident admitted only of one construction, supposing all obstructions removed. Colville was creeping from his hiding-place, and would probably fly with speed from the house. My belief of his sickness was now confuted. An illicit design was congenial with his character and congruous with those appearances already observed. I had no power or wish to obstruct his flight. I thought of it with transport, and once more threw myself upon the bed and wrapped my averted face in the carpet. He would probably pass this door, unobservant of me, and my muffled face would save me from the agonies connected with the sight of him. The footsteps above were distinguishable, though it was manifest that they moved with lightsomeness and circumspection. They reached the stair and descended. The room in which I lay was, like the rest, obscured by the closed shutters. This obscurity now gave way to a light, resembling that glimmering and pale reflection which I had noticed in the study. My eyes, though averted from the door, were disengaged from the folds which covered the rest of my head, and observed these tokens of Colville's approach flitting on the wall. My feverish perturbations increased as he drew nearer. He reached the door and stopped. The light rested for a moment. Presently he entered the apartment. My emotions suddenly rose to a height that would not be controlled. I imagined that he approached the bed and was gazing upon me. At the same moment, by an involuntary impulse, I threw off my covering, and, turning my face, fixed my eyes upon my visitant. It was as I suspected. The figure, lifting in his right hand a candle and gazing at the bed, with lineaments and attitude bespeaking fearful expectation, and tormenting doubts was now beheld. One glance communicated to my senses all the parts of this terrific vision. A sinking at my heart, as if it had been penetrated by a dagger, seized me. This was not enough. I uttered a shriek, too rueful and loud, not to have startled the attention of the passengers, if any had at the moment been passing the street. Heaven seemed to have decreed that this period should be filled with trials of my equanimity and fortitude. 
the test of my courage was once more employed to cover me with humiliation and remorse. This second time my fancy conjured up a spectre, and I shuddered as if the grave were forsaken and the unquiet dead haunted my pillow. The visage and the shape had indeed preternatural attitudes, but they belonged not to Colville, but to Welbeck. End of chapter 20